Growing up, I was never particularly good at sports. Honestly, I was probably a mediocre athlete, I would argue. Uh, I, I would argue that parents place their uh, students or kids in sports for one of two reasons. Either one, they see a particular future in uh, athleticism, in sports, uh, the ability to maybe pursue it collegiately or professionally, or two, they have way too much energy and time on their hands and therefore they need to pursue sports. And that's where I found myself. I had way too much time on my hands, way too much energy, and so my mom placed me within sports, and I had a lot of hustle, but no real ability. <laughs> so she placed me in basketball, football, baseball, and the worst one of them all, soccer. <laughs> I can't do two things very well, and that's kick a ball straight and run fast, and you need both of those things for soccer. You need to do both very, very well. But instead, she still put me in soccer. Now, when I was, I was real young, and I remember uh, I was placed on a team recreationally that, that played on weeknights and weekends, and, and as I was placed on this team, the, the team did not match my same mediocrity. In fact, they were very, very good. Uh, they were the Silver Stallions, the, just a great team name. They, they were good, like they were mini David Beckhams that continued to push forward in this recreational league, and I remember being a part of them, um, but despite being bad, despite not really being very talented at soccer, I had this innate desire within me, and that desire was to be the one that scored the winning goal. Be the one that ended up scoring the winning goal where people would hoist me on their shoulders, they would shower me in Gatorade, they'd be, I'd be the one that they'd be chanting the name of as, as we pulled out a, a, a win. Like that was my desire. I remember that always filling me that, that though I was bad, I wanted that so, so dearly. And so it came up in one game. There's a game where we were tied up three to three. The, the, our, our unbeatable record on the line. And I remember my, one of my teammates getting the ball on one end of the field and me standing at the other and he begins to dribble forward and I see this as my moment. This moment, I, I feel it. I know this is the moment of glory that I will receive, that I will go down as a mythical legend for the Silver Stallions to be able to win this game, that I will be able to be the one that they cheer forward. And as my teammate is dribbling down the field, getting over to me, I remember him looking directly at me and seeing the worst player on the team and turning his attention to a better player and kicking the ball to him despite the fact that I was open. And so in this moment, all of this desire, all of this excitement, everything that I wanted that was pent up in me turned quickly from excitement to anger. And so I did what I only knew, and that was what I learned from cartoons from Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny. And I walked up to this young boy who was smaller than me, grabbed him by the collar, and lifted him up in the middle of the soccer game. Like, we have not even scored a goal. I am lifting up my teammate, and I begin to yell at him, saying, if you do not pass me the ball, I swear I am going to hurt you. Now, this is not wise. If Believe it or not, this breaks up everything, but it even is more unwise when you're doing it to the coach's kid. <laughs> so I drop him in that moment as I am coming to the realization that I am completely and utterly disunifying the team. 
But as the game is going on, we have a mission, we have a goal, we have something that we're all pursuing. And I'm pulling my teammate over to me and I'm yelling at him so that I would get the glory, that I would get the fame, that I would be the one that would be made much of. We do that all the time in life though, right? Like we want the ability to be the one that is made much of, that despite the fact that we have a mission, that we have a goal, that in the church we have a mission and goal to see the redemption of the gospel in our world, we're taking shots at other church members or other people around us, people that are on our team, and we're forgetting about the mission at hand. We're forgetting about who we are. We're forgetting that God has redeemed us, that he has brought us forward in grace and that we are to walk forward in that. If you've been with us, we've been in a study in Ephesians. In the first three chapters, Paul has been telling us who we are. He's been uplift, uplifting us, sharing with us the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in chapter four, as he begins the next section, he's gonna begin to show us what we are now to do. And the very first thing that he shares us to do is to be a unified church. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Ephesians chapter four. I'm so glad to be able to join you this morning. As Derek said earlier, my name is Josh. I am the student pastor here at Highlands. And I just wanna welcome you if this is your first time here. I promise I'm not a bully anymore. The Lord has redeemed me from my uh, soccer ways. And um, I have been placed in his grace for that. Uh, so we begin in Ephesians chapter four this morning. Paul says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with peace, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he descended, what does it mean that he also, or I'm sorry, in saying that he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. This is what we are to do. We have looked at who we are. We are now to walk forward in unity and grace with one another. If there was one idea that I would want us to understand from this passage that I believe Paul's putting forward to us, it's that grace is made known through unity in the church. Grace is made known. The mercy of Jesus Christ, his love is made known through unity in the church and the way that we care for one another. And this is an idea that will be put forward by Paul all throughout the New Testament, but it's not an original idea of Paul. It's actually brought forward first by Jesus in John chapter 17. Jesus, when he is on his way to die, offers up a prayer for his disciples and also future believers in which he shares what we are to be and what his desire is for us. Look at John chapter 17, verse 20 through 23. It says this, I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you love me. Why are we unified? Why do we pursue unification in the church, loving and caring for one another? It is because the unity of the church is one of the greatest uh, evangelistic tools of the Lord himself. Jesus' desire for us to love one another, to care for one another, to be, uh, to be actively involved in caring for the unlovable, for the, caring for those outside our walls, for caring for those within our church, for loving those who are outside our realm is because it shows the world the love, the grace, the mercy of Jesus Christ himself. However, there's a roadblock. There are times when the church doesn't exhibit this, and there's multiple different ways in the ways that the church doesn't exhibit this, but one of the biggest ways is that when the world ends up looking into the church, when they walk into our walls, when they see who we are, a majority of the time they don't see a place that they belong, they see a place where we belong. They see who they're supposed to be, but not to be themselves and to be known, loved, and accepted. And hear me, I'm not saying that we should change ourselves to make Jesus cooler, to make him more relevant to the culture around us, but the world should be able to look in and see a place where they are redeemed and brought in by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and that we show that same love to one another. But oftentimes we become so, uh, we desire so much that people succumb to our behaviors, our habits, the way that we act, the way that we look, the things that we hold on to. And we want people to be uniform. We want people to look just like us instead of uniting together from all the differences that we may have. And so the world sees a place that they are shut out from because they do not fit the uniformity that we have created. And hear me. Unity does not mean uniformity. I think sometimes we look around in the church and we see, our, we see people that look a lot like us and we say, we're united, we feel good, we're going in the same direction, but uniformity does not equal unity. Uniformity only splits us apart into small silos. You see, unity, unity in the church is when we are of one spirit despite complete opposite differences. Uniformity is when we're all the same in our behaviors and there is no difference. Unity is multi-generational service, working alongside one another to be able to do ministry in the life of the church. Uniformity is one age group that has been siloed off to their own space and place. Unity is multi-ethnic conversations and relationships that help build each other up and provide background and experiences for people to be able to grow. Uniformity is one ethnicity and one group that only sticks to themselves. Unity has healthy disagreements but builds towards an understanding towards uh, different diverse viewpoints and backgrounds while uniformity has one viewpoint that people must succumb to and understand. Unity looks for and invites those outside of the room. Uniformity looks to stay in their own clique, in their own segment, in their own place. And church, if we want to be a place, if we want to bring revival to the Pacific Northwest, we need to be a place that is united, not just uniform. We need to be a place that accepts the outsider, that works together despite our differences and begins to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ together and impact our cities greater than we could ever imagine. So I think Paul puts forward to us three different things. 
We, we naturally have the question of what does it then look like for the church to achieve true unity? What does it look like for this to be lived out in our walls, in our conversations, in our relationships? What does that look like? I think Paul will put forward three different things that are significant for us to understand and to uh, put into our own life. The first one is this, that unity is achieved when peace is practiced. That unity is achieved when peace is practiced. In verses two through three, Paul is going to label off different characteristics of the church. And he's going to mention something about the bond of peace. See, the bond of peace is something that cannot be seen but is only exhibited in the characteristics of church members, of those around us, those within our walls and our relationships that we hold. The bond of peace is like an aroma that as soon as someone enters the doors, they can feel it. They may not be able to necessarily see it. It may not be palpable, but they can feel it as they enter into our conversations, as they in, enter into interactions, it is like when someone makes fresh baked cookies. Immediately, as soon as you walk into the room, you can smell it. Immediately, it draws you in, it brings you forward. It is something that is good that you are naturally going to want to sit and stay a while. This is the bond of peace. And the bond of peace is exhibited in characteristics within the church, within its people. It's, it's humility. It's people that are able to look at one another and see other people get wins in their faith, get moving forward in their relationship with the Lord and grow their ministry. And even though we're not receiving the spotlight, we're cheering them on. We're happy that they're growing. We're happy that they're moving forward despite us not getting the glory. It's a people that are gentle, that our words are filled with life and that people aren't the victims of our wit or sarcasm. That when they see us walking in the hall, they don't try to go the other way because they know that we will merely put them down. But instead, they, when they see us coming, they know that we will be a people that are building them up and bringing them forward. We're a people that patience. We're a people that are patient in our desires for other people. We don't rush the sanctification process of other people in their life. We help them forward. We move. We allow them space. We give them margin. And we build them closer to Jesus. We're people of love that we don't place conditional requirements that the same love that Jesus showed us that was unconditional is also placed upon those within the room, that we care for those that seem unlovable to us, that are difficult for us to care for. We show that same love towards them. But this bond of peace, this aroma that fills the very culture and very nature of who we are is not something that is easily maintained. In fact, Paul will argue here that we have to be eager to maintain this. Like look in verse three, he says that we must be eager to maintain this bond of peace because if we are not careful, it will slip away. If we are not careful, this will begin to drift because naturally we're not humble. Naturally, we're not filled with a lot of patience. Naturally, we're not very loving. But we work towards this in hopes of being able to create a culture that is peaceful. And can we even imagine what it would look like if we were all so eager to be able to maintain this bond of peace, what the halls of Highlands Community Church would look like, what our small groups would look like, what our conversations would look like, they would be unbelievably beautiful, but we have to fight for it. We have to emotionally buy into this. This is something that we must hold on to. Paul tells us that we must maintain this. We must work. It's going to be hard work, but it's worth it as we begin to work towards 
unity with one another. Peace or unity is achieved when peace is practiced. The second thing that we see in this text is that unity is achieved when differences are held in a mutual respect. Unity is achieved when differences between one another are held in mutual respect. Look at what Paul says. He kind of switches and goes a different direction in verse four. He begins to label off all of these statements about a, a one, and he says, uh, there, we are under a certain set of beliefs, under one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope. These are known as the distinctives of our faith. Paul is essentially saying, this is what we are known by. This is who we are, that we gather in this room as a body of believers, all cohesively understanding that these things are hills that we will die upon. These are things that we are willing to hold close to ourselves and we can all look at each other and say, I agree on that. They distinctively separate us away from different religions and belief systems that are held onto by other people. It is our team logo. It is our team colors. It is who we are. And if it is different, it means that we are no longer of that same team. These distinctively make us separate. And most of the time, as fellow believers, because we unite under these one things, we're not going to disagree or argue with one another on these things are arguments and conflicts that pop up and disunify one another or when we begin to argue about secondary things, philosophies, theologies that surround this thing and we begin to attack one another and fight against one another. See, a majority of the time, uh, if you have been a part of a church uh, for very long, you'll begin to realize and know that you have differences with other people. In fact, I would argue that in many communities you will walk into, you will begin to notice that you have different life philosophies than other people. You have differences with many different people. You don't, you're not exactly the same. You are not all uniform. And so when that pops up, when differences pop up and you collide with another person, there is conflict that's naturally going to happen. And sometimes that conflict can be very good. There are moments where we need to be able to help instruct and build up the body of believers in good doctrine. There's times where we need to be able to instruct and build up a body of believers in good philosophy of ministry and how to parent and how to do things very, very well. There are times where we need to build each other up but it's not the conflict that's the problem. It's the way we handle the conflict. It's the way that we deliver the truth. So there are times where we have differences not surrounding these primary issues, but there are differences that we hold with more minute, smaller, secondary things. And we don't deliver it with patience. We don't deliver it with grace. We don't deliver it with mercy. Instead, we go directly to them. For instance, if someone has maybe a different theology than we do that it holds a, that, that is not necessarily primary, that is secondary, that is very important for us to have a conversation over, but we do not bring truth to the table as a sledgehammer. We bring it as a scalpel that helps to build up and instruct and help believers along. When we have a difference of philosophy of ministry and maybe we see a leader, a coordinator, a pastor doing ministry completely differently, we don't go to them and just tear them down and just label out all the ways that they're horrible and how they're doing things wrong. We encourage them and share our perspective and our experience. When we see another parent maybe doing things differently and parenting differently, instructing their kids differently, we don't just immediately go to them and tell them how they're the worst parent. We help them along. We show them what we're doing. We show them the experiences we had. 
There's a way to deliver the truth and handle conflict well, and that is that we look at fellow believers with mutual respect, care, and kindness, and we handle differences Christianly, that we handle it with grace, we handle it with mercy, we handle it with care. Unity is achieved when differences are held in mutual respect with one another, that we can show care and kindness and that we can walk away from conversations with a desire to be able to see each other grow. The third thing, unity is achieved when gifting is recognized and mobilized. Unity is achieved when gifting is recognized and mobilized. Paul will now change and he'll shift to a different focus here in verse seven. He says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, Paul in this segment right here is quoting a psalm. He's quoting Psalm chapter 18. And there is a significant difference if you were to go back to the psalm and and look at it on screen here. There is a difference between these two passages. You can pick out different grammatical differences within this passage. And and as I kind of studied and figured out why Paul would be doing this, under the uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he began to shift this Old Testament psalm to a New Testament perspective. And you will notice that Paul says here, instead of Jesus or instead of God receiving gifts from men, he's doing what? He's giving gifts to men. There is a shift in the New Testament perspective that Paul is now giving, that that God is no longer receiving gifts, but he is giving gifts to men. Here's what this means. That each and every single one of us who are a part of the church have been given a gift from God to bring about the unity of the church. That God has uniquely wired you to play a vital role in the state and well-being of the church. He has given you gifts to be able to be utilized and that we need to walk forward in recognition of them. We need to study, we need to look at ourselves, see the way that God has given us gifts and we need to walk forward in that. Some of us, some of you, may naturally have been built with the gift of hospitality. Like the second that you walk in the room, you give other people the ability to feel comfortable and at home. You would be perfect for our hospitality team. Like you need to be at the front doors of the church. Some of you have the gift and ability to preach, to speak and communicate God's word and you wanna step forward in that in our middle school, our high school. Our stage needs people to be able to preach and coherently say the word of God to other people and you need to step forward in preaching God's word. Some of you may have the ability to worship and need to be a part of the worship team. Some of you may have uh, skills in technological skills or maybe background work and you're more tech savvy and you need to be a part of our media team. Whatever it may be, God has uniquely wired you to be a part of the team, to bring about the unity of the church. He is using us as vital tools in his hands to bring about the redemption of the world around us, to show the grace and unity of the world. The issue is, majority of the time, we don't utilize our gifts. Majority of the time, we may see the things that God has given us, The majority of the time we sit on the sideline instead of joining the team on the field and we allow ministry to be done uh, by the professionals. Or maybe we wait for a specific calling from the Lord and we stand on the sideline, we say, Lord, if you just will speak to me, I will go after it and I will do it. 
Or maybe you feel like you, you, you're just insecure in what God has given you, or maybe you don't wanna step into what God has given you because you don't wanna do that specific role. Here is my plea for you to step on the field. Mobilize the gifts that God has given you. We need you. We need you to be a part of the team. We need your abilities. God has uniquely wired and gifted you for a place and a space here right now. And if he wanted someone else, he would place that person in that spot. But he has uniquely wired you for the gifting to be a part of the team, to build up the body of believers, to mobilize your faith so that the church may grow and so that the world will be able to know and Seattle will be forever changed by the work that you are doing within the church. Unity is achieved when our gifting is recognized and then it is placed, it is utilized, it is in the church mobilized for the sake of the gospel. So the question is, what do we do with this? As we move forward, how do we begin to enact this? How do we begin to work forward? And I, I think Paul will actually tell us in verses nine through 10. I think he gives us a very specific instruction that I think is helpful, but we're gonna have to do some groundwork real quick to be able to make sure we understand it. In verse nine, he says this. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, when you see this passage, there's something weird going on here that some of you may have different views or beliefs on what Paul is talking about. Many commentators and scholars and theologians all look at this passage and try to figure out what is Paul saying by he descended? Where is Jesus going? What's happening in this text? And there are three different distinct views that I found as I began to study that number one, some people believe that Jesus descended to the dead while he was in the grave for three days. Some people believe that he was in, he was ministering to those of the Old Testament, bringing them forward with the grace and mercy of Christ. Some people believe, this, this is speaking particularly to Jesus' incarnation, him being made man, him coming to earth, him ascending or descending from on high and being made man. Some people believe this could be the spirit at Pentecost when it came down to the church in Acts and that it's the, uh, the dissension of the spirit to men. And you may hold a different belief. You may hold something within your head. You may have something that you hold on to here. But the central truth is this. This is what we see. We see a God that humbled himself from on high to associate with the lowly. We saw a God who brought himself down, descended from on high, from his throne to be with mankind, to save those around us. In fact, Paul says this in Philippians 2. He, he resonates with this. He, he shares that, that we need to have this mind among ourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He descended and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus humbled himself from on high so that others may feel the grace, love, and mercy of Jesus Christ. In the same way, we need to humble ourselves. We need to humble ourselves. Unity starts with us. Unity starts with us humbly caring for those that we have forgotten because we have been so entrenched in the different silos, the different uniform groups that we have placed ourselves in. Unity starts with us humbly recognizing 
that we may have been thinking of someone in a really incorrect light and gossiping about them behind their back. Unity starts with us humbly confessing to other people moments where we may have hurt them, moments where we may have been sharing different things that we shouldn't have been sharing and saying words or phrases about them that were incorrect or maybe creating a caricature of who they are. Unity starts with us humbly forgiving those who may have hurt us, even though they may not have earned it or maybe deserve it at all whatsoever. So my challenge for us is if we are going to walk forward in this humility to be able to see the unification of the church going forward, we need to care for someone that we don't usually feel care for. That if we wanna exhibit this love, if we wanna exhibit this unity, we need to begin to step out of our uniform groups, we need to begin to step out of our normal space, and we need to begin to care for someone that we don't usually care for. My challenge is get coffee this week with someone that has a completely different viewpoint than you, that maybe you've had a disagreement or argument and just get coffee with them. Don't feel the need to necessarily share your arguments or come already with a whole thesis on some sort of theological issue, but come and just talk with them, speak with them, pray over them, care for them. Send an email. Send an email to a, a, a leader, a coordinator, a pastor that you feel like is doing ministry different than you and encourage them. Build them up. Show them that you are willing to fight for it. You may not agree with them, but build them up in the unity of Christ. Join a team. Use your gifts. Find ways that you can be a part of the body of the church. Get on the field. We need to move forward because the church is unstoppable when it is unified. But we break apart when we're uniform in our own separate groups, distinct on our own and lacking cohesion with one another. Grace, mercy, love is made known through the unity of the church and the way that you care for your brother and sister in Christ. Will we move forward in that? When uh, I dropped the kid from my grasp, holding him uh, by the collar, uh, I remember feeling this intense, white-hot fury of two eyeball laser beams staring at me from the sideline, which was my mother. Uh, and I remember quickly moving from anger to fear um, and knowing that I was probably going to be grounded for life. And in fact, I could be still grounded to this day and not know it. <laughs> but as I walked forward... And I came back to her. I remember her instructing me. She was upset. She was angry. She felt the way she felt. But uh, I remember her teaching me a very, very important lesson. She taught me that it wasn't about me getting the glory. It wasn't about me getting the fame. It wasn't about me being the one that was hoisted above everyone else so that I may be known, so that I may be the one that's great. But it was the fact that the team was able to win. And going forward throughout the rest of the weeks, I remember I, I pretty much rode the bench uh, or was barely placed in the field, and I don't blame the coach for doing so. Uh, but I remember my team winning. And the feeling of winning with the team was greater than me getting the glory and us losing. We have a mission at Hand Church, and we need to make sure that we are not getting caught up in our own desires, in our own selfishness, in our own way, and that we see the, the benefit of unity and us linking arms together. Do we want to see revival hit the Pacific Northwest? We must be unified together. Let me pray for us as we go into worship. Lord, I, I pray that as we move forward into your 
your gospel, your mission. Lord, I pray that we understand that we must be unified as a church, Lord, that we need to set aside our differences, that we need to be able to help one another, encourage one another, build one another up as we further the gospel and redemption of Jesus Christ. I pray for those who are wanting to join in on this family that, that want a place to belong. Lord, I pray that they confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and they step forward in your grace and mercy and that they see a family that is willing to accept them and bring them forward into your mercy. Lord, help us as we go forward this week to be a caring church, unified and as one. In your name we pray, amen. Will you stand with me as we sing this last song together?